This is the Education Gadfly Show. Every week I go, please don't use sports. All right, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> Every you're right, week you're right. we That's, get to that sports. Is a what does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me in welcoming my co-hosts, the Loretta Lynch and James Comey of Education Reform, Alyssa Schwenk and Brandon Wright. That's Ugh. quite the moniker this week. Um, I'm not really sure what to say about Boom. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to, you know, do you have too much inside baseball here? But I, I feel like there are some times that you guys squabble over The two of us? <laughs> I never squabble with anybody. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Squabble-free zone over squabble here. Squabble-free <laughs> zone. Oh, my God. What a mess. Just, so is, is this simply the latest twist? Is just is this just cable TV trying to get us to watch their shows and make a lot of money? Is that all that's happening Like here? a reality TV show within a reality TV show within a rea- reality I've TV show? I've heard that the election has just been a crazy windfall for yeah. all the channels. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. Just made them an yeah. insane amount yeah. of money. But hurting the NFL? Can that possibly be true? Is that real? I don't know. The NFL has been sort of boring this year, too. Yeah. This is a debate, but somebody they blame they, they, two they have ties blamed, in the last two weeks. They have two ties. Yeah, I, I, I know don't they could tie. I, they, they don't have a way to break ties. Guys, every week I go. Please don't use sports. All right, terms. sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> every right, week right. we That's, get to that sports. That is a digression. Somehow. Let's keep 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 focused on yeah. uh, you know education or this election. Uh, though we're really not supposed to talk about the election. I prefer so education. education. Yeah, it's just All so right. much friendlier. We'll talk about nice education. Topic. By the way, no, I am not just trying to have a sexy voice. I do have some kind of cold. Sorry to those of you out there who miss my normal cheerful. And to the people in the room with you. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So here we go. It's time for Ed Reform Update. Okay. Well, we are going to talk about the election, but as it pertains to education, uh, and and not so much, you know, big national or even state uh, legislative battles, though I had a piece on that last week. You can Mm -hmm. check it out. Of course, back then I thought it looked like it was going to be a Democratic wave election, not looking like that quite so much this week. But who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? We still have seven more days in this contest. Who knows what's going to happen between now and next Tuesday? Uh, But what we want to talk about are some of the issues that are on ballots, both state and local ballots, and whether it's a good idea to put issues before the voters like this. Uh, This was a a big progressive reform 100 years Mm -hmm. ago, right, to have direct democracy. Uh, and it's become quite popular in some states like California. This year, uh, two big ballot issues getting a lot of attention in our circles. Question two in Massachusetts around lifting the charter school cap. And I think it's called issue one in Georgia, which is to basically create mm-hmm. an achievement school district, kind of like Tennessee has, to turn around low-performing schools. And then, of course, all around the country, there will be issues on ballots around levy. Mm-hmm. In other words, local school districts, local school boards asking for permission to raise taxes in order to bring in more money for operating expenses or sometimes capital. So we're going to talk about all of that. All right. Now, now, Brandon, I know you're you're just chomping at the bit here to talk about the levies. Somehow you did not know that this was even happened. It was a thing out there, maybe because of where you've lived. You haven't had to vote for a levy. But tell us from Ohio, our colleague Aaron in Ohio, great article about how this works uh, how how clear are these issues when put before the voters? They aren't clear at all. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. All right, tell yeah, us more. Quotes, more. Two, two ballot things in yep. Ohio. Yep. And their language, sometimes super long. One is 300 words long in three part. Yep. 
One is short, but uses mill like 15 times. All right, the, read, read us a couple sentences. Wait, wait, wait. What does mill mean? Sentences. Well, that's exactly right. Okay. We don't, you know, all right, read us. Uh, so it asks if the district can get emergency funds in the sum of $48 million and a levy of taxes to be made outside of the 10 mil limitation estimated by the county auditor, auditor to average seven and 93 hundredths mil for each $1 valuation. <laughs> What does that mean? Uh, you don't know what that means? I mean, it's, come on. Uh, you're going to have to turn in your badge as an that education is policy language. And, and this was actually approved. This yeah. language was approved by the County Board of Elections and the Secretary of State. Well, Brendan, you went to law school. There are lots of lawyers out there and they need things to do. <sighs> well, they're not doing their job very well here. <laughs> uh, so, first of all, of course, these could be made more clear. You mm -hmm. could say, okay, we want to raise the tax rate from, you know, 4% to 5%. You know, for a home that costs $100,000, that's going to mean an increase mm -hmm. in taxes of 200 bucks a year, something like that, right? Clear language. Uh, but they don't want to do that because uh, then people would, you know, might understand that, wait, this is going to cost me money and be more likely to vote against it. Now, this raises the bigger question, which is, why do we have these things in front of voters in the first place? My understanding is it's kind of a conservative thing that, that's basically the state saying, you know, school boards are allowed to raise money using local property taxes, but they have to ask the voters to approve it. Otherwise, these local school boards are going to spend like drunken sailors. Alyssa, what do you think about that? I mean, I'm always up for a drunken sailor analogy, um, but <laughs> I think it is one of those things where it's democracy and inherent in democracy, as we all learned in government, are the trade-offs, like how many people are being represented by whom and where is the power held. And frequently it's a thing where, you know, not everyone can get what they want. So the trade-off is making this kind of vague or making it kind of something that we have to tussle with. But you're, you're quoting the Rolling Stones here. You can't always get what you want. But you're, if you try sometime, you just might find. Ladies Mick and gentlemen, Mike is need. listening to 500 albums right now. Just, <laughs> there true. might be some more music references. That's but, true. I, I am making my way through the 500 best albums of all time. Uh, and there's a lot of Rolling Stones <laughs> there's on there. There's a lot I gotta of say, you know, yeah. I, which, you know, whoever put the list together, clearly showing their biases. But here, here's the question. I mean, Alyssa, we are a representative democracy. We, sort of. Right? I mean, we, we generally we have this idea that we elect people to represent us, and then they hash out these trade-offs and these very technical issues. Now, certainly, the populist argument out there right now that's fueling the Trump campaign, that fueled the Bernie Sanders campaign, is that it's all rigged, you can't trust it, you know, that, that the representatives aren't representing the people, they're representing, you know, special interests. That's why we need to throw the bums out, et cetera, et cetera. Perhaps as a Washington-based think tank, we're not in the best position to argue <laughs> against this populist, uh, or, you know, thing for direct, or direct democracy, but it's crazy. Yes, but at the same, and I realized as I was like doing a lot of research for today's show that I have entirely inconsistent views on this issue, and I will freely admit that. But there is an element of if we're spending the taxpayers' money, if we're going into their purse, like we should ask them. Should we be asking them more clearly? Probably. The issue one in Georgia, the language is something like, do you want to grant the state more flexibility and accountability to improve schools with community engagement? Like who's going to vote against that? So right. then you get into the whole issue of voter education. But The problem here though, right, is is one, that not that many people actually vote. Yes. Though even, in a presidential election, in the presidential, it's like 60%, right? Percent, right? Um, but a lot of these things like uh, Aaron, who wrote the article we talked about yep. earlier, wrote one earlier in the year about uh, school boards. Yep. And those are held off cycle. Yep. And sometimes the turnout is between 6 and 20% right. of people. But even when the turnout's high, mm -hmm. people don't go there informed. Like, yes, they 
maybe should, or we hope that they would. But the reality is for these small things, a bunch of people who vote, Mm -hmm. just it isn't fair to actually expect them to know all of these small issues. And then when they go in and they actually vote, they're going to be influenced by the language yeah. of the question. I mean, right. Is that really democracy? Right. But one I, could it, argue that the legislators will be influenced no. by so-and-so as well. So I do understand. I'm not saying that for me, sure. it's always a question of like, is this language worded yep. properly? And that's sure. about, that's kind of where I say this is and, and, something and we look, need to be It's always going to be the case. If, if the question is like, do you want free stuff? People are more likely to say yes. And yes. do you want to have, do you want to pay more taxes? And people are going to say no, right? I mean, this is why, again, it's about trade-offs. I, I have to happen to like the way that it works in Maryland, where the school districts are these county-wide school mm-hmm. districts, and they, the school board does not have separate taxing authority. They have to ask the county council for the money. They get into fights about this all the time, mm-hmm. but the county council's job is to think about everything. They got to worry about, you know, health Roads and transportation and, and da da da, da. And education. And so they have to think about trade-offs. And, you know, if they really want to spend more money on the schools, do we want to ask the taxpayers to spend, to pay more taxes? I, I understand there's a conservative argument that if we got rid of these levies, and, and especially if we got rid of local funding of education, mm-hmm. if we, you know, because a lot of our friends in education reform would say, hey, let's do it all at the state level, right? Spend it all the state, do it equitably. It would be, you know, make sure that schools of choice, like charter schools, get full funding, spend more money on poor kids. I mean, look, I could get behind all of that. It would be a lot of redistribution of resources, kind of Robin Hood. And again, I think that's okay, you know, if we're talking about greater equity. But the the downside of that, it is true, is that there is no longer than local accountability. I mean, there is something about superintendents. No, they got to go out and face the voters and get them to say yes on a levy. And, you know, that degree of accountability might be kind of healthy, right? That's true. That's true. Yeah. All right. Last, last point here. We're kind of running All out of time. Offs. Look, on, on the things like the charter cap, the, the Georgia amendment, I mean, just pragmatically speaking, it is really a lot. Political science will tell you it's a lot easier to get a no vote than a yes vote on these things. Mm-hmm. And so I think we've learned this lesson the hard way in education reform. The, these, these issues are to, these referendum are to be avoided at all costs because it is incredibly hard and expensive to get people to vote yes on these things. We've seen this in Washington state, for example, where the unions have constantly been able to put the charter question on the ballot. Finally, we were able to get it passed. You know, it was super hard. Uh, you know, th- these reforms, though, that are, are good for kids are fairly kind of center left, center right. They're the kind of things that you can get legislatures who are worried about long term impact on their states to get behind. Uh, but once it becomes, you know, who can demagogue the issue and spend the most money on TV advertising, we almost always lose. So let's try to avoid. It. And so does democracy. Okay. And so did, oh, beautifully said, Alyssa. That, that was nicely yes. said. I think Loretta Lynch has said things like that this week, too. Okay, that's all the time we've got for Ed Reform Update. Now it's everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. We were just talking about these levy issues that are on ballots across the Uh country, often super confusing, hard to understand. I understand you've got some issues you have to vote on there in Richmond. Well, I think we have five or six in Virginia, and everybody wants more money. More Mm -hmm. money for the schools, the parks, the firehouses, you name it. Everybody wants more money. And I was just saying, it's worded, like whatever advocacy group got their hands on this wording, mm-hmm. it's just nuts. Like, you know, do you really want to deny kids money for these buildings that haven't been reven- 
renovated since 1943 that are crumbling and roach infested <laughs> uh, and have it and have lead paint you know like check come on, here if you have a heart oh it's <laughs> right. great it's what they you know always called the washington monument strategy yeah the park service right you don't, if you don't give us more money we're closing the washington oh, monument. that's right so anyway i'm gonna be heartless sad uh, to say but Amber. don't want my taxes going up anymore tough. wow <laughs> tough, 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 tough. all right what you got for us we got a new study out by mathematics called Do Low-Income Students Have Equal Access to Effective Teachers? Evidence from 26 districts. So I, let me just stop. I love this study. It is mm. full of surprises every, mm. every step of the way, okay? Yeah. Anyway, so we know that prior studies have found that low-income kids have less qualified teachers, but that tends to be based on things like teaching experience and teacher test scores and are they certified and how much education do they get? All that kind of stuff, right? All that right. paper stuff. Mm-hmm. And we, we know that those differences exist, but there have been very few studies that then say, okay, do those things matter mm-hmm. at all in terms of closing achievement gaps and that sort of thing? And what does it matter in terms of if we have a difference in the access to this effect of teaching for mm-hmm. low-income kids? Mm-hmm. So anyway, yeah. I, like, I read this and I thought, I thought we did this study, mm-hmm. but we really haven't done it in the way that they did it. Okay? Well, and, and, and again, I mean, there has been an assumption, an argument for... Mm-hmm. I would say almost two decades that we have a teacher quality gap. That's right. right. I mean, education trust, this has been the heart of their argument, why that there has been in both No Child Left Behind and in ESSA, these requirements around teacher equity plans at the state's, I mean, the assumption is this is a huge Huge. problem Mm -hmm. that needs fixing. So they asked Mathematica to do it, right? Which is the right people. This was IES commissioned. Okay. So you got these rock star people over at Mathematica did the study. Anyway, they look at grades four through eight over five years, 2008-9 to 12-13. Um, low income defined as, as, as it usually is, eligible for free and reduced price lunch. Yep. High income is everybody else, like everybody else got put in the bucket. Okay, right. so that's a little bit stark. The sample included 26 geographically diverse large school districts across the country, median enrollment about 70,000. So these okay. are your, your big ones. Um, and they use, obviously, district uh, value-added, a value-added model for each teacher in each district. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. Key, five key findings. Number one, contrary to conventional wisdom, they find that teachers of low-income students are nearly as effective as teachers of high-income students on average. Mm-hmm. Huh. A difference of just one percentile point. Mm-hmm. So, specifically, the average teacher of a low-income student is just below the 50th percentile, while the average teacher of a high-income student is at the 51st percentile. Mm-hmm. Uh, how are they defining effectiveness? Based that, on value added. Number two, in addition, high- and low-income kids have similar chances of being taught by the most and least effective teachers. Mm-hmm. So, for example, 10% of both high- and low-income kids are taught by one of the top 10% of teachers in a district. Mm-hmm. So, same thing there. Number three, teachers hired into high-poverty schools, these are the newbies, yep. are equally effective as those hired into low-poverty schools. That's a big surprise. Huh. Big surprise. Uh, though, and then they explain it. Though the new hires are less effective than the average teachers, and though less, mm-hmm. and, and though high poverty schools have more new hires yep. in general okay. than low poverty schools do, um, it doesn't make that much of a difference since the difference is already small, mm-hmm. and the performance of new hires improves so fast. Right. So this was the other shocker to me. Um, they found that on average, the new teachers become as effective as the average teacher after just one year. I always thought it seemed thought like it was more like two or three, three or at least, yeah. right for five. But here, that was kind of different, mm. right? They caught up quickly. Number four, not surprisingly, on average, teachers who transfer to schools that are higher in poverty than, they, than the one they left mm-hmm. 
are less effective than the average teacher. Yet, again, those differences don't affect this equity argument too much because just under 4% of all teachers transfer to schools in a higher or lower poverty category anyway. Mm -hmm. We have very, very small. And it's a little more than 4% move between schools of the same poverty level. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you don't have teachers like going from one extreme to the other, like a ton of teachers. Okay. Number five, last one. I know it gets a little weedy. Um, nor does teacher attrition much impact access to effective teaching among high and low income kids because leavers are equally effective among high and low poverty schools. Okay. So you're not like a lot worse when you leave. And then last little factoid, only in a subset of districts, just three out of the 26, did they actually find this inequity in access that we Mm -hmm. talk about so much. Um, And it was only in math. So in those three districts, if you provided high and low income kids with equally effective teachers mm-hmm. in grades four to eight, um, we'd see about a reduction in the student achievement gap by about a tenth of a standard deviation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, which is equivalent, by the way, to four percentile points over five years. Mm-hmm. Okay. So anyway, that's it. I mean, I, I think, again, they glumly surmise at the end that the uh, achievement gap arises from factors other, other than students' access to effective teaching. So in my mind, like, okay, is it just me or is this a huge deal? Yeah, look, this is a this is a huge deal. And I'm waiting for some of our friends on the left uh, to try to shoot arrows at it. And here are some of the things I, I suspect they'll say. So first of all, external validity, is that the right term? I, Tell me what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> do these findings apply to the rest of the country? Do we, uh, okay. how so representative are yeah, these So they're districts? geographically diverse. And they did say that these districts, the achievement gap relative to these districts yeah. uh, is similar to the achievement gap that we see in NAEP. Okay. So they okay. did do their homework in terms of, you know, how probably, how representative okay. are these districts. Did I use the right term? Uh, it's really more representativeness. Classes in session. All right. Uh, second question is how the value added was computed. I mean, you know, a lot of these value added models, you're basically looking, you're, you're, let's say the teacher score all depends on how much progress the kids are making compared to other kids that start at their same achievement level. Mm-hmm. So if you've got a lot of low performers, it's about whether those low-performing kids make more growth than other low-performing kids, which in many instances is not a whole lot of growth. Right, not mm-hmm. a lot. Um, right. And so, you know, there's a little bit of a circular thing there that, well, if achievement and poverty level go together to some degree, and so, mm-hmm. you know, is, is it harder for those teachers in affluent schools to show value added, for yeah, example? Yeah. I, I don't know how to think about that. Yeah. No, I, I, and they don't go into a lot of detail about. Yeah. You and, know, and then the finally, you know, did Sue Dynarski have something recently where she showed that if if you look at free lunch kids instead of free and reduced price lunch, mm-hmm. you know, some other some of these gaps look much more stark. Mm-hmm. And because half the kids now are free and reduced price lunch, and because the problems of the program, so maybe the problem is we're you know we just have this binary you know free and reduced price lunch half the kids not yeah. the other half. If we could actually look at if we actually knew more about kids income levels or their socioeconomic mm-hmm. status. If we looked at other things, you might find bigger gaps. Yeah, if, you know, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's why I said like to dump all the other kids who aren't free or lose lunch and mm-hmm. like you're hot, you're calling them high income, you know, being maybe we'd see difference yeah. among different yeah. income levels if we had that data. I but mean, we don't, but it's, just, it's a huge problem in all these yeah, studies is problem. we don't, I mean, you can use other things like mother's education level, right. As that's a, right. as a stand in, but mm-hmm. we don't have a good idea of, and, yeah. of this stuff. And so, it could be that kids in leafy affluent suburbs, you know, at the 90th percentile are in fact getting much better, more effective teachers than mm-hmm. kids in, you know, inner city poverty or rural poverty areas. Mm-hmm. If we have more nuance. We just can't data. pick that up mm-hmm. from this mm-hmm. study. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does this map onto, and I don't remember off the top of my head, but maybe you do studies like 
the distribution of impact scores in DC, which is sort of, Mm -hmm. there are high, you know, income schools that are really affluent and really low income schools that are very much. Yeah. So, I mean, we found there, they were doing a great job counseling out the the low performers, the the low performers, right? But there was a worry at first about it was easier to get a high impact impact score score in a rich school than in a poor school. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, I haven't heard that anymore. I feel Mm -hmm. like they've got so many smart people working on that that they have just been really nuanced about that. That was about observations as much as anything else. Because it was easier to, you're like, wow, that class looks great. They're, you know, because the kids weren't acting up or they, it's just easier to teach Mm -hmm. maybe in in an Mm -hmm. afternoon. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, gosh, that's been such a success story, right? Mm -hmm. That whole, I mean, I don't know, just that. All right. Well, this is huge news. Maybe we can't quite declare that, uh, States don't need to turn in their teacher equity uh, plans after all, but it certainly raises a big question that many of us uh, thought maybe was settled is not so settled. And, uh, right. right. And that's important to know. So, and, and by the way, this is good news that, uh, that lower income kids do have access to To effective teachers. At least there's not these, uh, you know, huge gaps. That we thought. Yeah. Very true. All right. That is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week, when I guess we'll know who the next president's going to be. Knock on wood. I'm Melissa Schwenk. (laughs) And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.